Chapter 31 Paul VI, Liberal Pope You will perhaps wonder, how is it possible this triumph of liberalism through Popes John XXIII, Paul VI, and through a council, Vatican II? Is this catastrophe reconcilable with the promises made by our Lord to St. Peter and to his church? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. I do not think that there is any contradiction. Indeed, to the extent that these popes and the council neglected or refused to make use of their infallibility, to appeal to that charism which is guaranteed to them by the Holy Ghost, provided that they indeed intend to use it well. They were able to commit doctrinal errors or a fortiori to let the enemy penetrate into the church by reason of their negligence or their complicity. To what degree were they accomplices? Of what faults were they culpable? and to what extent was their office compromised. It is indeed obvious that someday the Church will judge this council and will judge these popes. It will certainly be necessary. How will Pope Paul VI in particular be judged? Certain people assert that he was a heretic, schismatic, and apostate. Others believe that they can demonstrate that Paul VI could not have had the good of the Church in view, and that therefore he was not the Pope. This is the thesis of the Sede Vacans, the Sede Vacantis. I do not say that these opinions do not have some arguments in their favor. Perhaps you will tell me, in thirty years things that were hidden will be discovered. Basic principles that should have been evident to contemporaries will be better perceived. Assertions of that Pope absolutely contrary to the tradition of the Church, etc. Perhaps. But I do not think that it is necessary to have recourse to these explanations. I think that it is even an error to follow these hypotheses. Others think, in a simplistic fashion, that there were then two popes, one, the true one, who was imprisoned in the cellars of the Vatican, while the other, the impostor, the double, sat on the throne of St. Peter, to the misfortune of the Church. Books have appeared on the two popes, supported by the revelations of a person possessed by the demon, and by the so-called scientific arguments that assert, for example, that the voice of the double is not that of the true Paul VI. Finally, others think that Paul VI was not responsible for his actions, prisoner as he was of his entourage, even drugged, which seems to become plausible from several pieces of evidence showing a physically exhausted Pope that had to be held up. This is still too simple a solution, in my opinion. For in that case we would only have had to wait for the next Pope. Now we have had and I do not speak here of John Paul I, who reigned only a month, another pope, John Paul II, who has invariably pursued the line traced by Paul VI. 
The real solution seems to me to be another one, much more complex, painful, and sorrowful. It is supplied by a friend of Paul VI, Cardinal Danielou. In his memoirs, published by a member of his family, the Cardinal says explicitly, It is obvious that Paul VI is a liberal pope. This is the solution that seems the most probable historically, because this pope is like a fruit of liberalism. Throughout his life, he was immersed by the influence of those around him, those he took as teachers, all of whom were liberals. He did not hide his liberal sympathies. At the council, the men whom he appointed as moderators in the place of the presidents named by John XXIII, along with Cardinal Agagianian, a curia cardinal without personality, Cardinals Lecaro, Sunins, and Dufna, all three of them, liberals, and his friends. The presidents were relegated to the rear, to the table of honor. It was these three moderators who directed the proceedings of the council. Likewise, Paul VI throughout the council supported the liberal faction which was opposed to the tradition of the church. This is known. Paul VI repeated the words of Lamennais verbatim at the end of the council. The church asks only for liberty. This was a doctrine condemned by Gregory XVI and Pius IX. It cannot be denied that Paul VI was very strongly marked by liberalism. This explains the historical evolution lived by the church in these last few decades, and it characterizes very well the personal behavior of Paul VI. The liberal, as I have told you, is a man who lives perpetually in contradiction. He asserts principles, but does the contrary. He is permanently incoherent. Let me quote for you some examples of the thesis-antithesis binomials, which Paul VI excelled in posing as so many insoluble problems which reflected his anxious and paradoxical mind. The encyclical Ecclesiam Suam of August 6, 1964, which is the character for his pontificate, supplies an illustration of this. If the Church, as we were saying, truly is conscious of what the Lord wants it to be, there rises up in it a singular fullness and a need for expression. With the clear consciousness of a mission that goes beyond it, and of the good news to be spread. This is the obligation to evangelize. It is the missionary mandate. It is the duty of the apostolate. We know this well. Go therefore, teach all nations. This is the last commandment of Christ to his apostles. These men define their unimpeachable mission by the very name of apostles. This is the thesis. But then, right away, here is the antithesis. In relation to this interior impulse of charity, which tends to translate itself into an exterior talent, we will use the name, which today has become the usual one, of dialogue. The Church must enter into dialogue with the world in which it lives. The Church makes itself the Word. The Church makes itself 
the message, the church makes itself the conversation. Finally, there comes the attempt at synthesis, which does nothing but to consecrate the antithesis. Pope Paul VI writes, Even before converting the world, indeed better, in order to convert it, we must first approach it and speak to it. More serious and more characteristic of the liberal psychology of Paul VI are the words by which he declared after the council the suppression of Latin in the liturgy. After having recalled all the benefits of Latin, a sacred language, a fixed language, a universal language, he then asks in the name of adaptation for the quote-unquote sacrifice of Latin, even while admitting that this will be a great loss for the church. Here are the very words of Pope Paul VI reported by Louis Saleron in his work, The New Mass. On March the 7th, 1965, he declared to the faithful Mass in St. Peter's Square, It is a sacrifice that the Church is making by renouncing Latin, a language that is sacred, beautiful, expressive, and elegant. It has sacrificed centuries of tradition and of unity of language for an even greater aspiration towards universality. On May 4, 1967, this sacrifice was accomplished through the instruction Tres Abinc Anos, which established the use of the common language for the recitation out loud of the Canon of the Mass. This sacrifice in the mind of Paul VI seems to have been definitive. He explains himself on this again on November 26, 1969, while presenting the new rite of the Mass. It is no longer Latin, but the current language that will be the principal language of the Mass. For whoever knows the beauty, the power of the Latin and its aptitude in expressing sacred things, this will certainly be a great sacrifice to see it replaced by the vernacular language. We are losing the language of the Christian centuries. We are becoming like intruders and outsiders in the literary domain of sacred expression. We are thus losing to a great extent that admirable and incomparable artistic and spiritual richness that is Gregorian chant. We have reason to be sure to feel regrets and almost confusion over this. Everything should have thus dissuaded Paul VI from bringing about this sacrifice and persuaded him to keep the Latin. But no. Taking pleasure in his confusion in a singularly masochistic fashion, he is going to act contrarily to the principles that he has just enumerated and to decree the sacrifice in the name of the understanding of the prayer, a specious argument that was only the pretext of the modernists. Never was the liturgical Latin an obstacle to the conversion of the infidels or to their Christian education. On the contrary, the simple peoples of Africa and of Asia love the Gregorian chant and that one and sacred language, Latin, the sign of their belonging to Catholicism. 
experience proves that where Latin was not imposed by the missionaries of the Latin Church, there the germs of future schisms were deposited. Paul VI then pronounces the contradictory sentence. He writes, The response seems banal and prosaic, but it is good, because it is human and apostolic. The understanding of prayer is more precious than the decrepit silk garments with which it has been royally adorned. More valuable is the participation of the people, of this people of today that wants to be spoken to clearly in an intelligible manner that it can translate into its secular language. If the noble Latin language cuts us off from children, from the youth, from the world of labor and of business, if it was an opaque screen instead of being a transparent crystal, would we be making a good calculation, we, the fishers of souls, by keeping for it the exclusive rights in the language of prayer and of religion? Alas, what mental confusion! Who is stopping me from praying in my language? But liturgical prayer is not a private prayer. It is the prayer of all the church. Furthermore, another lamentable confusion, the liturgy is not an instruction addressed to the people, but the worship directed by the Christian people to God. The catechism is one thing, the liturgy is another. It is not a question for the people assembled at the church of being spoken to clearly, but rather of this people's being able to praise God in the most beautiful, the most sacred, the most solemn manner there is. To pray to God from beauty, such was the liturgical maxim of St. Pius X. How right he was! You see, the liberal mind is one that is paradoxical and confused, distressed and contradictory. Such indeed was Paul VI. Mr. Louis Saleron explains this quite well. When he describes the physical look of Paul VI, he says, He has a double face. He is not speaking here of duplicity, for this term expresses a perverse intention to deceive, which was not present in Paul VI. No, it is a double person whose contrasted countenance expresses a duality, now traditional in his words, now modernist in his acts, now Catholic in his premises, his principles, and now progressive in his conclusions, not condemning what he should condemn, and then condemning what he ought to preserve. Now, through this psychological weakness, this Pope offered a dreamed-of occasion, a considerable opportunity for the enemies of the Church to take advantage of him, all the while keeping one face, or half a face, if you will, Catholic. And with the other face, he did not hesitate to contradict tradition. He showed himself favorable to change, baptized mutation and progress, and went thus in the direction of all the enemies of the church who encouraged him. Did we not see one day in the year 1976 
Izvestia, the organ of the Soviet Communist Party, demand from Paul VI, in the name of Vatican II, my condemnation and that of Icon. Likewise, the Italian communist newspaper, L'Unita, expressed a similar request, reserving a whole page for it, at the time of the sermon that I gave at Lille on August 29, 1976, furious as it was over my attacks against communism. Be conscious, it had written, addressing itself to Paul VI. Yes, be conscious of the danger that Lefebvre represents and continue the magnificent movement of approach begun with the ecumenism of Vatican II. It is a little embarrassing to have friends like those, don't you think? A sad illustration of a rule that we have already remarked. Liberalism leads from compromise to betrayal. The psychology of such a liberal pope is rather easily conceivable, but it is more difficult to uphold. It puts us indeed into a very delicate situation with regard to such a head. Whether it be Paul VI or John Paul II. In practice, our attitude should be based on a previous discernment, rendered necessary by these extraordinary circumstances of a Pope won over to liberalism. This discernment is thus When the Pope says something that is consistent with tradition, we follow him. When he says something that goes contrary to our faith, or encourages or lets something be done that harms our faith, then we cannot follow him. The fundamental reason for this is that the church, the pope, and the hierarchy are at the service of the faith. It is not they who make the faith. They must serve it. The faith is not being created. It is unchangeable. It is merely being transmitted. This is why we cannot follow those acts of the popes that are done with the goal of confirming an action that goes against tradition. By that very fact, we would be collaborating in the auto-demolition of the church, in the destruction of our faith. Now, it is clear what is unceasingly asked of us. Complete submission to the Pope, complete submission to the Council, acceptance of all liturgical reforms. But this goes in a direction contrary to tradition, to the extent that the Pope, the Council, and the reforms carry us far away from tradition, as the facts prove more every year. Consequently, to ask this of us, is to ask us to collaborate in the disappearance of the faith. Impossible. The martyrs died to defend the faith. We have the examples of Christians imprisoned, tortured, sent to concentration camps for their faith. A mere grain of incense offered to the pagan god, and immediately they could have saved their lives. Someone once advised me, Sign, just sign, that you accept everything, and then you can continue as before. 
No, one does not play games with his faith.